Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right, good morning. This is normally when somebody would come up and read Scripture, but I forgot find somebody to come up and read scripture. So I'm going to read it. But uh, kiddos, well, no, kids, hang in here and listen to this and then then you can go. Um, We're going to continue in uh, our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) I thought I was in Matthew 5 and I was in Matthew 8. Glasses are good. God's good gift to us. All right. Our scripture this morning will come from Matthew 5. We'll start in verse 17 through 20. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. This is Jesus talking. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not even the smallest piece will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we flip over to the end of chapter 5, verse 43. Those last of these, uh, you've heard it said, but I tell you statements. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than anyone else? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. All right, now, kids, with loving your enemies in your earbuds, uh, you may go. We have Elevate this morning. I think we just have Elevate this morning, right? And there's a lot of them. And if somebody wants to grab that back door back there, That'd be great so that we don't interrupt Elevate and all of their fun that they're having. Uh, Just a quick little uh, update here. Um, After today, we're going to take some time over the summer. We're going to take a break uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to take some time over the summer to talk about uh, loving one another and the New Testament commands and encouragements to do that, uh, but also um, uh, some very just practical ways. How do we actually love one another? Today, today, we're going to talk about something much more daunting, uh, and that is loving our enemies. Uh, and I also, I think, something that we'll bring in today is, is maybe filling in some of the blanks from last week when we talked about uh, turning the other cheek and how do we respond in the face of evil, and there, there may be just some things to kind of fill in some of those blanks, maybe that... Some of this will help us understand that a little bit better. Um, There are a billion ways uh, to 
go with this, this text here. Uh, I cut out about, I've got still in my mind about 300 more quotes to put in here and examples and thoughts and uh, caveats and potentials, examples, difficult things to understand and process. I hope going through this this morning is going to give us some, some concrete answers, but maybe even potentially leave us with more questions. Um, and uh, with all that said, I, I want to start with the punchline. All right, here, here's, here's the end of the sermon uh, lest, we, lest you're disinterested by that point. The goal of the follower of Jesus, regardless of the, of the world that we're in, regardless of the culture around us, the goal of the follower of Jesus is always reconciliation. It is always forgiveness. It is always hope. And what goes with that is that there is never a guarantee of that happening. Uh, in fact, we are guaranteed that it won't always happen. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> Especially when this, this idea of loving our enemy. So, we'll start there and work our way forward. And I'm going to tell you, as a confession starting off this morning, one, I'm, mentally I'm exhausted. The last six weeks of going through this stuff, there's a lot of nuance, there's a lot of heavy topics, there's a lot of stuff that we have walked through and this one just kind of culminates with everything. And if I'm being honest with you, I really don't want to preach this. Uh, there's, there's some particular reasons, but just generally speaking, I just don't want to preach this. Uh, so that's just so you know where I'm at uh, this morning. Um, I was tempted to, there's a couple sermons, I was tempted to play like John Mark Comer or, or Tim Keller this morning and just sit in with you guys and drink some coffee. And maybe even st still, you, you may be much more edified by going and listening to their sermons. But instead, what you're going to hear this morning is kind of a weird combination of John Mark Comer and Tim Keller's sermons on this, along with uh, Scott McKnight and, and, uh, and Glenn Stassen and whatever else has been jammed into my brain. Uh, and, and hopefully, prayerfully, also the Holy Spirit uh, is at work there as well. And so we're just going to kind of walk through this verse by verse. And, and this, what's hard is the amount of nuance and care that this takes. And I'm just, <laughs> I'm tired. So, here we go. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. All right, Jesus is partially quoting scripture here. He's not manipulating it, he's partially quoting scripture here. Leviticus 19, in fact, a lot of the, a lot of the chapter of Leviticus 19 deals with how to properly deal with and love your neighbor, and it's not that unique in, for all of time in history. Um, don't steal, all right? That's not unique to Christianity. Like, people don't look and go, man, those Christians, they don't steal. Hopefully. Hopefully they look at us and they can at least say that, right? Um, as I rip off John Mark Homer and Tim Keller, all right? Uh, don't oppress. Don't slander. Don't lie about your neighbor. Don't hate them in your heart. Be honest with your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are commands that come straight from Leviticus 19, written down in the Mosaic Law. The debate, however, had become, and this was not uncommon with Jesus, right? And we know how this is working with Pharisees and stuff. So how do you tiptoe around the law? How do you get around it? Uh, okay, okay, I hear you. But who then 
is my neighbor? Right? You guys have heard that question asked in the New Testament, right? Who is my neighbor then, Jesus? And, and different Jewish sects had developed different ways of, of ways of implicating this law by determining, wh- by determining which people were their neighbors, which people they were required to treat well and love, uh, and which are not. And it's never said in Scripture, and certainly never explicitly taught, that you should hate your enemy. We, we don't say that, right? We don't say that out loud. Uh, but it was perfectly justified to hate your enemy. Oh, yes. Uh, in fact, in some cases, you were actually, it was morally responsible to hate your neighbor. To, um, no, not hate your neighbor. Now I'm confusing metaphors. Uh, to hate your enemy, right? To hate certain groups of people, certain ethnicities, certain nations, and most definitely the oppressors. Oh, most definitely. It's the way of the world. It's the natural thing that we do. Jesus even says, doesn't everybody do this? Uh, David even prays, should I not hate those who hate you? Okay, now before we move forward, I want you to get in mind your enemies, our enemies. All right, we're gonna, we'll make this just a little uncomfortable here. Um, and, and, and I'm going to tell you right now, if you sit there and you go, I don't have enemies. Yes, you do. You do. Let's not be naive. The implication here, enemies, is, is everybody. Big, small, personal, corporate, political, national. So think broadly here. Let some folk come to mind. And I'll just, as you're thinking, I'll confess. So I helped coach my son's baseball team. Um, and uh, was it Wednesday night? Wednesday night they had a game. And I helped coach, and I got warned in the second inning. One more comment, and I'd be watching the game from the car. I made it three more innings. I, it was like full game. I made it the rest of the game. Rest of the game. And in the fifth inning, when our, uh, I got warned by the umpires, and they're, they're usually better than this. And I'm a coach. I'm not just an irate parent. I, I rate coach. Um, and, uh, and, and in the top of the fifth inning, because Little League games usually don't go f- five innings, right? Usually it's a blowout, and this is a good pitcher's duel. And our other two coaches went up to the umpire, and they were like, all right, top of the fifth. Have you ever had a five-inning game? And the umpire's like, top of the fifth, and I had top of the fourth. And then he said, did I miss a whole inning? And I made it, right? I walked away. I bit my tongue. With that kind of setup, I bit my tongue. And I was like, don't say a word, dude. So we all have enemies, right? (laughs) For some, the enemy is a national enemy, ISIS, Putin, terrorists. For some, the enemy is a group of people, those fundamentalists, those liberals, activists, Maybe it's the color of a person's skin. Maybe it's the way a person's person dresses. Maybe it's somebody's sexual orientation. Maybe it's even a fan base. Right? For more of us, however, the, the first person you think of as an enemy 
could very well be something very, very personal. Someone who hurt you. Someone who bullied you. Someone who abused you, undercut you. Someone who pushes your buttons. I think the commands of Jesus will be more, fro- more profound and impacting when we're able to grasp that we do, in fact, have enemies and that we don't, in fact, just love everybody. That's, all right. There are people that we disagree with. There are people that we rightly disagree with. There are people that we should disagree with. So let's not cheapen the word love here by just, ah, we just need to love people. Love is hard, right? I think we've hit that. Love is hard. Let's not cheapen that word um, so that we don't appear to be a bad person, right? Don't love people. Like, we all love this concept. Love your enemies because it makes us feel good. Um, let's dignify the word love with how hard it is to do. And maybe, maybe we just be a little more generous with the word enemy here. Embrace that. All right, so here we go. But I say to you, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brothers, if you, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. All right, everybody... Everybody doing okay with that? Yeah. Just do that. Right? This is radical. This is a radical thought. There is no other religion or worldview, in in antiquity especially, there's no other worldview that, that gives a command like this. They have lots of thoughts on what to do with your enemies. None of them say to love them. And I think here's the biggest problem with our current cultural dialogue. I think we're all convinced that we're doing this. I think we're all convinced that we pretty much got this one down. And, and mostly by pointing out how much our enemies are not doing this well. That's kind of our strategy. I, we love our enemies, not like those fundamentalists. I love my enemies, not like those liberals Yeah. Well, it, just, it just flows off the tongue, doesn't it? It's like a Hallmark card. You just love your enemies. Guys, this is radical. Every religion had some form of dealing with enemies. Every religion has some form of don't murder, general care, well-being for others. Uh, our culture has, you know, be a good human, be kind to everybody, and, and all of that stuff. But if we're honest, we're all kind of saying the same thing. You should love the people that I love. And if you don't, then I have the right, reserve the right, nay, the obligation to hate you and count you my enemy and seek for your destruction in some one way, some way or another, right? This is our world of life. This is like the one-upsmanship. I love my enemies. You need to be destroyed. Do we see the disconnect there? This is tricky. Here's what's tricky about this. I think everybody gets some of this. I think we all get some of this. But 
getting all of this is it's hard. And it's hard and it's exhausting. And, and it does not happen without the work of the Holy Spirit. And even there, <laughs> even there, this is hard. This is a long process. And how do I do that? And so, so Jesus says, okay, so Jesus says, love your enemies. So he makes it plural. This is everyone is at stake here. Love enemies, plural, singular, everybody. Uh, okay, well then, how do I do that? And who are the enemies that I should love? And then he says, okay, pray for those who persecute you. So the only person he probably is talking about here, specifically in this text, is Rome. He is telling the oppressed Jewish people to pray for their oppressors. Not to take up arms against them, not to rebel, but to actually pray for their Roman oppressors. And and it's likely given the context here, that Jesus is not saying pray for their destruction. It's probably, he's probably not saying pray for the giant meteorite just to happen to hit Rome. But actually pray for their good. It's, it's one thing to pray in precatory psalms on the people you don't like. And that's like God bring the rain of fire, right? And we've talked about this. We can be honest before God, right? We can vent before God. We can bring and go, man, God, I really want some justice here. And if you just happen to wipe out this entire family, I'd be okay, right? Or umpiring. Or go to automated umpires. That's fine. Uh, right? It's, it's, like, we can be honest with God. But also, let's be careful. That's not, that probably doesn't qualify as loving your enemies. I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind here. To pray for their good their reconciliation, their salvation, to pray for their hearts, to actually want good for your enemy. We're commanded by Jesus to love our enemies. And this is what's glorious and terrible about this, okay? It's not a political move. It's not a way to win the world for Jesus. It's not, Jesus doesn't say, if you do this, then we'll have a better world. And he doesn't even say that this is an effective evangelistic tool. What does he say? What's the reason he gives for why? So that you might look more like your father who is in heaven. So that you might be more conformed to the image of Jesus. Love your enemies, not because of what it might do for them, but because of what it does in you. Their response is not the goal. We are becoming more like our father in heaven. And that's great, and it's really frustrating. This is, not a, this is not a technique to achieve results, and that's really frustrating, because I want results. This is what's right. It's not necessarily what's effective. Although I do think it is effective. And we are being conformed to the image of God. And this is the God that gives rain and sunshine to the just and the unjust. And praise God we have rain today, right? If you're, if you're visiting, I'm sorry. But we have rain. Rain's good. We need rain. In, in the early days, in the ancient world, uh, you need rain to make the crops grow, right? This is, an, this is an agrarian society. You need rain and sunshine to get food, to feed the animals, to eat. 
the rain gods, the fertility gods, they were easily the most powerful, popular gods in the ancient world. People wanted to please them. People would make sacrifices to them because rain was so vital. And what God says here is that, is that he is the one that makes the rain fall on, on all people. He is the one that gives growth to his children, to the people of Israel, and to Rome, to their oppressors. He is the one that both brought Egypt to its knees, and he's also the one that made Egypt great and powerful. The rain falls and the sun shines on Israel's crops, and it shines on the Assyrians, and the Babylonians, and the Samaritans, and Cub fans, and Stan Kroenke. Is that too far? God, who knows the human heart, still values every human being as his image bearer. Mosaic law, when it was given, it was to be applied in equity to every person within their boundaries, regardless of gender, regardless of wealth, regardless of standing, regardless of status, even the foreigner, even the outsider that dwelt among them, the law was to be applied equally to every human for their flourishing. And God, who is unlike the gods of every other nation, distinguishes himself by saying that he is the one who gives rain to all people, just and unjust. Now, God who judges the heart he will judge the heart, and injustice will not stand, and ultimately our world will be made right. But if he were to only cause rain to fall on the righteous, there would be no rain. Right? We are called to treat human beings, every human being, as an image bearer of God, regardless of whether they repent and turn to Jesus or not regardless of whether they become like us, regardless of whether they vote like us, act like us, look like us, live in the same nation as us, regardless of how they respond to it, we are called to love others even if we count them as enemies. So how do we do that? Now, this is where we may fill in some of the blanks from last week. John Mark Homer talks about how do we do that, like how do we have efforts to turn enemies into neighbors, right? which is good, and the ways that he processes that were really helpful, and I'd encourage you, go listen to that sermon. If you, we'll, maybe we'll put a link up, and you can hear how much better John, Comer, John Mark Comer is than me. Um, and, uh, and, and there's a lot there, but sometimes I, I want to be careful lest we think loving our neighbors is a means to an end, like this is the agenda. And if we love our neighbors, then we'll win the world for Jesus. It's never the promise. Tim Keller his application was actually, a, I thought, a bit more helpful and challenging, and it's just pure Tim Keller. So I'm going with his. <laughs> kind of. Like, I'm, uh, we're, this, all right. There are a ton of nuanced questions that flow out of this. Like, how do we, how do we love our neighbors, our enemies? When do we speak up? When do we turn the other cheek? Um, does this mean we're just passive? Do we just take the beating? Do we self-defend? What about when the weak are attacked? What about justice and standing up for justice? And what about defending the poor and the weak and the outcast? What about when the people of God are the ones doing the oppressing? Do we still turn the other cheek? Do we still love those who hate us? Or even more, do we love those who hate God? 
And there's lots of specific issues here. And I'll be honest, we should probably spend weeks and weeks and weeks on this, and we're not going to. I mean, this kind of flows in and out of like everything we do, but there's a lot of good, hard questions here that I don't know that we have specific answers. But Tim Keller appeals to this fantastic summary of what we are called to do and be as followers of God. And it's the, a verse that many of us know, Micah 6, 8, right? Shows beautifully. In, in, in chapter 6 of the, prof, uh, the prophet Micah asks questions rhetorically. What, what should we bring to God? Should I bring all my wealth? Should I bring burnt offerings? Should I bring thousands of rams or, uh, or 10,000 rivers of oil? Now, Micah, when he's talking about oil, he's talking about perfume. But I, but I think it still stands today, right? Could I bring 10,000 gallons of oil to you, Lord? Uh, Israel doesn't have that. That's in the surrounding nations, actually. Micah 6.8, oh, he has told you, oh, man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? We know this, right? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. Keller compared this to like a mobile, right, that like hangs over, over, a, uh, over the crib. <laughs> Words are hard. Hangs over the crib of the baby, right? And, and if you have like little birds that go in a circle, and as long as all of them are there, then, then it keeps spinning and it hangs. But if one of those were to fall, it throws everything off, right? It's, it, then it's unequal. And so as long as these three things are in tension and they're all present, this, is, this works well. We are to do justice we are to love kindness, and we are to walk humbly with God. The first two are really kind of the counterbalance to each other. We are to be tough and tender. We are to speak truth with love. We are to do justice. We are to speak up and labor and act on behalf of justice. Any Christian, anybody bearing the name of Jesus that says justice has no place in Christianity has never read Scripture. It is all about Christianity. Just, this is supposed to be the heartbeat. We are to do justice, to make right, to see when the poor or the outsider are abused or neglected, the poor treatment of other human beings. We are to, as a body, we are to act in that way. We are to bring equity and harmony. We are to make the appeal to what is right and good and what is good for humanity and good for human flourishing, even for people that we may disagree with. And this, in our day, is difficult. It's, it's difficult. It's difficult to navigate. Um, kind of because, you know, like when you, when you highlight everything on a page, you don't really highlight anything on the page, right? When every sentence has an exclamation point, you're not exclaiming anything, you're just yelling. Um, and there's a lot of hurdles to this. Virtue signaling. You guys know what virtue signaling is? When we put a presentation out there of, of every movement that comes, I'm totally for this, and next week, I'm totally for this, and what are we, what are we banning this week? What are we canceling this week? What are we avoiding? And, like, it's crazy. All over the place, and, and, and this is not just progressives, right? I mean, conservatives and progressives. I've been around long enough to, we boycotted Disney, and now I think, I don't know if we're supposed, I don't know, I've lost count. Like, what we're supposed to, Christians are supposed to be boycotting these days. Um, I think now Chick-fil-A made the list. I know, the end is near. <laughs> and it, 
everyone is, we're kind of in this way of making ourselves look better. We're changing our Facebook pic to the hot topic of the day. And it's hard to discern because we're seemingly trying to put everyone into an oppressed people group so that we can all be angry and outraged about something. And what is actually doing justice versus what is simply us versus them, which is what is just trying to make ourselves look better. And then when you bring corporate sponsorship in, it, it starts taking over every single movement and we're just, we've just kind of become outraged about everything, right? And what are we really doing? And I, there's, I know there's like evangelicals, like we've constantly had this kind of persecution complex and now with deconstruction, like ex-evangelicals, I'm like, you guys learn from the best. Now, now the ex-evangelicals have this persecution complex. It's, evangelicals are persecuting, and it, like, it's just all kind of, like, we're all just yelling. We're all mad. And even with the craziness of the last couple of years, objectively, evidences show that, that inequalities are actually way down across the board as far as, like, specific practices. but our voices are turned up. Christians are to be for justice. We are to work for what is good and right and equitable and good for human flourishing. We are to defend laws that protect everyone, every religion, even religions that we disagree with. We are, we are to be for justice. We are to call out the abuses of power, even and especially within our midst. We are to be a voice for the voiceless. We are to be vocal and labor well for that. But we are also called to love kindness. And it feels like our world, religious and irreligious, that we are hard at work not only hating our enemies, but actually going to extreme lengths to create more enemies that we can hate. And like accentuating just how much we differ with them so that we can hate them even more. Just how unredemptive those people are. Um... It's like, do you guys, you remember Titanic? Um, the, the enemy in, not like the Titanic, but the movie Titanic. Um, and, and the bad guy in Titanic. Like, it's not enough that he's a rich jerk. They, like, go out of their way that he is the most slimy, despicable per Like, what was Rose thinking in the first place? Getting engaged to this guy. And just in case he's not slimy enough... Like, the movie ends with him, like, throwing a baby off the life raft or something. Like, because we have to make him 100% irredeemable. You guys remember that? All right. This is what we're doing. It's not, people are not just things, that, we don't just disagree with people. They are evil in our disagreement. Followers of Jesus are called to, to elsewhere. We're called to speak truth, but we're called to do it with love and being open and with the hope of reconciliation. We don't call them bad and then move the target whenever they try to go, yeah, that's right, which most people don't respond that way. But if you say, this is bad, and somebody's like, oh, I want to be good. Ah, nah, nope, now that's bad. You're like, and we're, we're not called, to, we're supposed to be open with the hope of reconciliation and forgiveness. Jesus said hard things all the time. He called out what was wrong. He called out exploitation, harsh treatment. I don't know if you guys remember this, but Jesus was put to death. He, he did love everybody. And he was put to death. 
And do you remember what the religious leaders accused Jesus of doing? They accused him of eating with tax collectors. Tax collectors. Nobody likes tax collectors. Jesus ate with them. Tax collectors were not like the broken people who were misunderstood. Tax collectors were Jews working on behalf of the Roman oppressive government and then getting rich off of fellow Jews by charging them more money with the Roman army behind them. It's, I, I, it's hard to find an equivalent in our day. It's really hard to find an equivalent in our day. Not even tax collectors in our day, right? Um, and Jesus was actually invited into their home. John Mark Homer gives the, gives the, uh, the equivalent of maybe su- sitting down with a radical white supremacist. I don't know. When Jesus sat down with tax collectors, it made everybody mad, and rightfully so. And Jesus actually wants for their good. He sits down with the fundamentalists. He's invited to eat at Pharisees' homes. They don't like it as much. He sits down with the flaming liberal. He sits down with the conservative. He sits down with Antifa or the Proud Boys. And listen, there's not a chance that he does not speak to their injustice. If he goes and sits down with the tax collectors, he's not sitting there going, hey, guys, keep up the good work. Right? He calls them out. He calls them to repentance and change, but he doesn't do this, like, indifferently. I think there's this, there's this mode where, like, Jesus ate with sinners, but he called them to repentance. Jesus wasn't just walking around going, repent, repent, repent. He got invited into their homes to eat. He probably laughed at some of their jokes. They shared meals together. They trusted him. He loved them and wanted good for them. And this is hard. Most of us are good at one of these things or the other. Some of us speak up. Speak my truth. We will rally the troops. And we will, we will boldly proclaim truth. And we won't ever, ever, ever have to worry about being invited into somebody's home that we disagree with. Because they would never have us. And I hear this all the time. Again, the most loving thing that you can do for somebody is to call them to repentance. Yes, with a big caveat there. Not indifferently. Not indifferently. When we were in, when we were in seminary, uh, we had a famous theologian come and speak to us in seminary. And, and I remember him saying, you should be so confident in God's sovereignty that you should walk up to anybody in the, in the grocery store and just be like, I know a way uh, your sins could be forgiven. Are you interested? Nope. Okay. And then just go to the next person. And I'm like, yeah, just like Jesus did. Except he didn't do that. He incarnated. He dwelt among us. He spent time in our homes. He walked with disciples that never got it. He spent time in crowds. He loved people, prayed with people, healed people. He wasn't just indifferent. That, that does not fit at all with his character. And that, I don't think that's what we're called to be. Some of us are good at just proclaiming truth. Some of us are really good at, at loving others. But then we're so fearful to say anything that might be confrontational. Just be a nice person, which is great, which is great. Um, but then sometimes we're not really good at being honest with each other. Sometimes we're not really good at being honest with each other. We're not really good at being honest with each other. It's not a high 
not a high calling in our, in our, in, in our culture. Um, and let's face it, to say something hard can be costly relationally. Even if you have relational rent, even if you have friendship, even if you love and care somebody and you try to do it the best way possible, it can end the relationship. Uh, I finished not too long ago Bono's uh, uh, autobiography, uh, which is fascinating to listen to. He reads it, and it's interesting. It's interesting. Uh, but one of the things he talks about was confronting the lead singer of NXS uh, a, a couple years before his suicide on his drug use. And he and his wife lovingly confronted them and, and said, hey, we don't think this is good for you. And it ended their friendship. He never talked to him again. And he regretted that. He said, I shouldn't have said anything. I don't know. I don't know. It's hard in our day. We all have the right, we all have the right to be offended and walk away whenever we want to. And we don't have to listen to things we don't want. We get the people we don't like in, out of our feed. We watch the shows that we want to watch. We watch the news that we want to watch. And, and we can be totally removed. And so many of us don't say confrontational things to each other's faces. <laughs> Uh, we say them all the time to each other about the other, right? Uh, but we just kind of passively, aggressively walk through life and maybe post a little statement here or there online talking to other people about other people. And it's hard to become somebody who can both say hard things and is able to hear hard things. How in the world can we both do justice and love kindness? How can we speak against uh, injustice and love the unjust? How do we actually love our enemies? The third part here is to walk humbly with our God. Uh, from Micah 6a, Paul's letter to the Romans, ironic, right? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Jesus didn't wait for us to become neighbors to love us. Jesus didn't wait for us to become friends before he loved us. And this is what is most offensive about Christianity and the gospel is the idea that we would be considered enemies of God. That anyone would be considered enemies of God. I'm not, I'm not a fan, but I'm not his enemy. I'm a pretty good person. I don't hate God. And here again, we kind of like minimize our offenses. Pretty sure God's cool with us because, you know, it's not like we're killing people like those people and 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 uh and we can hit the button you know hit the like button on a few virtuous things we can drink our bud light or don't drink our bud light or whichever one is virtuous this week and and you know we like the people that we're supposed to like and we don't like the people that we're not supposed to like just like gentiles do and everyone else and then we just live this glorious indifference to everybody except for me but to consider that there's nothing in us that deserves God, God's grace and God's favor, and yet he loved us. To consider that we were enemies of God, worshipers, worshipers of our own kingdoms, and yet in his infinite mercy reveals to us our sin, and he knows our hearts completely, and we stand before him completely exposed, and he says, I don't reject you here, I love you. He redeems us. He rescues us. He gives his life for us. Who am I then to hold anything against anybody? We'll finish this really quick. Verse 48. 
You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, this brings us to our practice for this week. All right? Because you guys work on that. It'd be great. All right, let's pray. Um, all right, so this is hard to translate, okay? I always saw this as Jesus kind of going at the end of this, like making this sarcastic comment. So just be perfect, guys. And that's not what he's saying. Um, although I do still like the idea of sarcastic Jesus. Uh, the word actually translates here to be perfected or completed or whole. Um, and this is probably put in a better position of like perfect devotion rather than just like perfect performance. An ultimate devotion to God. And this is what it's, I think, essentially, this is how this is, this is what's being said here. When we love even our enemies, this is how we are being refined. This is how we are being perfected. This is how we are getting our old self chiseled away and our new self. This is how we are most being conformed to the image of Jesus who loved even me, his enemy. This is what works on us most. And I want to finish with two glorious examples of this to point out. And I don't have an example. I, I don't have a practice for you this week. Um, just be perfect. Uh, get that down next week. We'll move on to something else. Um, all right, two glorious examples to point out this week of humans who in Christ loved their enemies well. Uh, in his Christmas Eve sermon in 1967, Martin Luther King Jr. reiterated his call to peace even in the face of persecution. And he said this, I've seen too much hate to want hate myself and every time I see it, I say to myself, hate is too great a burden to bear. Somehow we must be able to stand up against our most bitter opponents and say, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. This hits home when you realize more who he is talking to. Predominantly the white church. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day, we will win our freedom. And we will not only win freedom for ourselves, but we will appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. Four months later, Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. Listen, followers of Jesus, perhaps, perhaps we are on the brink of actual persecution in America for followers of Jesus. Perhaps the greater church in America, I don't know. But I want to tell you this. Sadly, but certainly, we have an example of not only how to exist under persecution in America as the church, but how to even thrive as a persecuted church in America, and it is the black church. She has been a beacon of light in darkness. Even and especially when the darkness came 
from her supposed brothers and sisters in Christ. She spoke truth. She held out her hand for the possibility of forgiveness and redemption, and she loved fiercely. We have an example for that. And then in our current day, perhaps one of the best public examples of this in my lifetime, who passed away a few weeks ago, Dad, come it. Uh, Tim Keller, people who agreed with him and disagreed with him, wrote glowing and mournful reflections of times when they received private emails of encouragement. People that radically disagreed with him, but they got an email from him, even ones who like publicly spoke against him, where he would say, hey, keep working on this, keep writing, the world needs your voice. And one such encouragement was from Tish Warren, and she wrote this, the, uh, the Christian scriptures describe the fruit of the Spirit. What grows in us as we walk with God, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Tim's life was marked by these things. And these dispositions, they weren't a political strategy. They weren't part of a brand they weren't a way to sell books or gain power or win the culture wars or take back America for Christ. Tim, in, Tim inhabited these ways of being, not as a means to any end, but as a response to his relationship with God and his love for his neighbor. The last 10 years or so have been hard on Orthodox or traditional Christians who are weary of Christian nationalism, hyper-partisanship, and the politics of bitterness or resentment. Michael Luo said in the, New York Time, in the New Yorker, Keller's passing leaves a void in the nascent movement to reform evangelicalism. And today's social and political currents make the prospects for change seem dim. Younger Christians, myself included, though I'm older, many of whom feel disaffected and disillusioned by the tone, antics, and political idolatry of a flailing American church, have few older leaders to look up to, few public guides who have walked further down life's hard road. Tim, of course, wasn't the only one, but he certainly was a shining light that proved that Christian leaders could steadfastly exhibit intelligence, integrity, graciousness, and countercultural kindness. He showed us a way of being, as I read many tributes from others this past week, I realize that I am mourning not just a friend and mentor, but also the loss of Tim's uniquely luminous public witness. Church. Love your enemies. And in so doing, we will become more like our Father who is in heaven, who has loved even me. Let's pray. God, bring comfort where comfort is needed, for the wounded, for the self-critical, for the fearful and doubtful. I pray that you would bring comfort. And for the hardened and the bitter and the resentful who see somehow, pulling from Scripture even, a need to destroy our enemies, bring conviction, rebuke by your love and kindness. Do in us what is impossible to do on our own.
a humble walk with you, fully dependent on you. That Jesus is our only hope for reconciliation. He is the one who has loved us and spoke truth to us. And may your bride, now more than ever, in the midst of such a divided world, may your people called by your name actually do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with you. Keep working on us. May we be dependent on you, trust you, as you go before us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.